0: I'm Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRAsk podcast. Hello, Greg. Hey, Amy. All right, here's a question from Andrew. And I think this is a very interesting question. How can. Yeah,
1: all the rest are so boring.
0: (laughs) How can God be omniscient since in heaven we will have everlasting life and an endless amount of time to do things? It seems to me that there must be a finite amount of knowledge for God to know everything. What am I missing?
1: Well, that's actually a good question because it raises the issue of actual mm-hmm. infinites. And uh, William Lane Craig has has raised a challenge against the universe being um, infinite in time, having always existed, based on the idea that you cannot accomplish, you can't have an actual infinite because it creates um, logical uh incongruities. Now I I I've frankly I've never been impressed by the Hilbert's hotel arguments and partly and I remember the Pasantinos um had mentioned that this treats infinity uh like a number and it's not a number. It's a quality. And um I don't know how Bill would respond to that, but I just never was taken with that. So, um, maybe it is possible for there to be an actual infinite in the mind of God, though, when you think about it, um, given—I think the question has to do with how we have everlasting existence and the new facts that are obtaining, and if God is, is omniscient, he is knowledgeable of those facts um, in, in the future that have not yet obtained. And since the future is potentially infinite, then God's knowledge of all of that should um, include a set of infinite number of facts that he knows in, in his omniscience about the future. Now, one end around might be, so my first response is, oh, right, maybe, and so there can be a set of infinite facts that God knows. I don't think that's a problem, because I don't think that I don't agree with the alleged logical inconsistencies with the actual infinites. I think another way to accomplish what Bill does, what Bill is concerned with, is to demonstrate you cannot accomplish an actual infinite through successive addition. Now, I know that sounds hoity toity, but it's really simple. That means you can't count to infinity. Let's try it one, two, three, four. 101, 102, 103. Well, you can see that no matter where you go, how many you add, you're always going to have a finite number. You will never accomplish an actual infinite. So even though we will live forever, we will never live for an an infinity because we will always have an age. All right. Now, that has interest. If you follow that, Um, then this also secures for us the beginning of the universe, because if you can, the universe is a series of events. And so if you can't accomplish an actual infinite by a series of events, one being added to the other, then the universe can't be infinite, infinitely old. Okay, so that, I think, is adequate to solve that problem. But I think it also solves the problem that Andrew has raised, because if we never if we never live forever i'm sorry if we never live in infinity but we live forever and we always have an age that at any point in the future there is always going to be a finite number of facts for god to be known for to be known by god through his omniscience so infinity is a is a is a infinite amount of time is a, 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 in a certain sense, a an, an abstract potential, but it will never be an actuality.
0: Except that what's past is finite at any moment, but if God's going to know the future and the future doesn't end, does he know all things that will happen forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end? Yes. That's, that is infinite. That is not a finite number.
1: No, it would have to—but you, but you can't accomplish an absolute—you can't imf- that's, uh, ac- that's accomplish right. an, an, an infinite number through successive addition, so it wouldn't even apply to God. And this is kind of a conundrum, because I see your point, <laughs> and uh, and I, I'm not sure exactly what to make of that. But as I pointed out earlier, even if it does amount to an actual infinite that God knows, I don't think that's a problem. Uh. William Lane Craig would, but I don't think it is. Now, I guarantee that he's confronted this issue before and talked about it. I don't know what his solution is. But from where I sit, I don't think it's a problem either way.
0: I'm not, su- I'm not sure he would have a problem with it. I, I could be wrong about that. I think all the problems he's talked about are always regarding finite the regarding the past and the fact that there has not been an infinite number of events... Up until now, yeah.
1: That's well. That would be my approach. But I know Bill's argument has been the impossibility of an actual infinite, and that's how he disqualifies an actual infinite in the past. But uh, maybe this is a special case. I don't know.
0: Well, but but of course, as you said, there will never be an actual infinite number of events. Right. Except that in the future there is. <laughs>
1: No, there isn't. It, you can't. That's I mean, in the future, diff-
0: in the future, if it doesn't end. Theori- right. But but it's not theoretically if we're actually, if we're actually going to live infin- in infinitely, <laughs> never end.
1: Forever. Not right. infinitely. Forever.
0: Forever. Okay, right. Yeah.
1: That's a more precise way of putting it.
0: So if that's going to happen, that means there's no limit to the things that—there's no stopping point to the things that will happen. So at any point in the past, there will be a finite. But if God knows what's going to happen in the future, that's what makes this difficult to—I think the answer is simply God knows everything, regardless of how many there are. And I don't think think that is a problem or contradicts any of the arguments that William Lane Craig makes about the past, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
1: Well, certainly not about the past, but like he says, he employs this broader principle: no actual infinites, and and then he he takes that he makes the point. Then he applies it to the past. It can't be actually infinite past. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, if there's no actual infinites, there can't be an actual infinite in the future either, according to his reasoning. But I don't know.
0: Well, yeah, well, that's my... well, yeah. That's the thing. There'll never be actual. The moment will not have happened. There's always an actual. There's always uh not. There will never be an actual infinite moments that have happened. But if things are going to happen in the future and not end, that is that is an infinite number of events, even if they have not actually happened yet.
1: I'm getting, I'm getting a migraine.
0: <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I'm just throwing some ideas out there. No, no it's uh, entirely
1: fair. I know I, these are good ideas, but I, I it appears that they're not solvable. If your understanding is an actual infinite is not a problem in itself, then God knows the future, which arguably, as you pointed out, contains an actual infinite number of events. And so what? That's what omniscience means.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the way to resolve But this is really interesting. I'll probably be thinking about this a lot <laughs> off and on, <laughs> trying to figure out what I think about this. So thanks for that great question, Andrew. All right, here's a question from JS. I read a true story where a cruel, abusive man became kind and gentle after a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Which is the real version of him and his soul? If the new version comes to Christ, but the original version never would have before the injury, does it still count?
1: I'm a little bit mystified in a certain sense about the question because if a person comes to Christ, under any circumstance, it counts. If he would not have come to Christ under the other circumstance, then he wouldn't be a Christian. If under the new circumstance he does come to Christ, then he would be a Christian. Uh, History is filled with examples of people who were one way, nasty, and became Christians, and people who were not nasty and became Christians. Uh people who are nasty and got dramatically changed, people who are nasty and the change happened slowly afterwards as they were slowly sanctified. I I, I don't understand why the circumstance that's just been described would raise questions about a person's salvation. Um and look at if you're an Arminian, if that's your view, then under the circumstances of being mean and nasty, if that fixed your will against God, then you still have a fixed will against God, and you're responsible for that. And if being really nice uh, changed to become really nice, then you do trust Christ, although lots of nice people don't trust him. I don't think it's a matter of being nasty or nice. Uh, then then you are the, a Christian. If you're in a Reformed perspective, God can change any heart. Uh, a really nice heart—that's a wicked sinner—or a really wicked, bad, nasty person who's still a wicked sinner. God can change them. So I—I I don't see how this issue relates ultimately to the question of salvation, regardless of what side of the kind of Arminian Reformed fence that you happen to be on.
0: And I would Does that say that makes sense to you. It, yeah, I—I I would say there's kind of a maybe an assumption behind this question that you your the state of your brain is responsible for you coming to god or not as if we're kind of trapped by by things that could be going wrong with our brain but honestly this is a spiritual issue this is this is not a physical issue it's not um it's not even an, an issue of my ability when God calls people, when he draws them, he, he changes them. And it doesn't matter—this is what you were saying, Greg—it doesn't, it doesn't matter what, uh, what issues you have or what injuries you have. It's a spiritual—it depends on God's work in you. Now, Greg, what would you say to this part of the question about which is the real version of him slash his soul?
1: They're both real. At different points of time. I, I, again, I, it, this seems to me to be pretty straightforward. If a person—there's lots of people who are nasty who become nice. Let's just set aside the spiritual element. Their souls are nasty, then their souls change and grow and become more virtuous. Now, becoming more virtuous doesn't make them a Christian, obviously, because even being more virtuous, there's still all the sinful stuff that that makes them culpable before God. But I think the presumption of the question is, people reject Christ because they're nasty, crabby people, and they accept Christ because they're nice, sweet people. Well, this is completely mistaken, because, like I said earlier, lots of sweet people never become Christian. I mean, LDS, your Mormon friends, they're magnificent by human standards, okay, and they are following a distortion of the truth, a false gospel, and never become Christians, even though they're really nice people. Then you've got all kinds of nasty, nasty folk that, in virtue of being nasty, are deeply aware of their nastiness and um, are, 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 are responsive. Just like the tax collector in Jesus' parable sitting in the back of the synagogue beating his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So I think that the idea that nice people become Christians and not nice people don't is mistaken, and therefore, if they're not nice because of a brain problem, it's unrelated to them becoming mm-hmm. not becoming a Christian. The implication is they're forced not to be a Christian because they're forced to be nasty because their brain circumstances are such that that's the way they are. None of this applies, really, to the actual circumstances of people becoming Christian, whether you're Arminian or whether you're Reformed.
0: Let's go on to a question from Katie. I'm mostly Calvinist in my theology. I'm a single 30 year old woman living in a rural area. Not a lot of dating prospects. Is it unwise for me to date someone who believes you can lose or reject your salvation? He seems to love and serve the Lord and values biblical authority. Am I placing extra-biblical rules on myself by feeling like I need to only date someone who aligns perfectly with my theology? Should I feel at peace dating another believer who differs with me and things like this?
1: Well, I I don't think it's so much an extra-biblical rule. Um, I think it's a matter of wisdom. And so um, it's smart— not, I mean, it's, let me back up and put it this way, it's not smart, and what I mean there is not that it's sinful, I'm saying it's not smart, to marry someone in which anything in your life that you hold really dear is something that that person does not share as well. Um, and I mean this is classic dating kind of stuff, uh, and I'm thinking Neil Clark Warren, who I think has done the best work on uh, on on decision making in wisdom and finding a mate that really you know, do well together. It's, I think it's called Finding the Love of Your Life is the name of his book. But basically, his point is make sure that in all the majors, you guys are like minded. This includes theology. Now, she says she's um, mostly Reformed—I'm um, I'm not sure exactly what that means—soteriologically, uh, all the things that relate to, so, to salvation, like, for example, the five responses to the remonstrance that have come to be known as the tulip, representing Reformed theology. I don't know how you could be mostly that. It's all or none. It's all a kind of a package. Now, I'm Reformed in my soteriology, but not. I'm not confessional, so I don't believe in a covenant theology, I don't believe in the way that's construed on the reform side, and I don't believe in infant baptism, whatever. So maybe that's what she means. I don't know. But um, I, I do think that this potentially, and I think you might be better situated to answer this, Amy. But if she is a committed, if she's committed to reform theology, at least with regards to salvation, and someone is really committed to Arminian theology, and a lot of people that I know who are committed, and I know lots of them who are committed Arminians, like Bill Craig, for example, or J.P. Moreland, um, there is an ideological hostility towards reform folk, not to the people, but to their ideas. And that, it seems to me, is not a healthy environment in, uh, in a marriage where you have some foundational issue that you have very strong differences on. It's not a sin. It's not a non-biblical requirement. It's an issue of what's smart. Now, every relationship can survive certain differences, I mean, it's like cash in the bank, cash out of the bank, and the savings account. You start making big withdrawals like that, if you want to go that direction, you better make sure every single other important thing is lined up, because relationships can—it's very hard for relationships to endure multiple big differences between people who have committed themselves to live their lives together.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, just looking at this question— Katie, when you ask, "Should I feel at peace dating another believer who differs with me?" and things like this, it sounds to me like you aren't feeling peaceful about this. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that I'm guessing that means that there's already some sort of um, some sort of
1: conflict. There's some sort of
0: conflict, or some sort of I can't think of the word
1: discomfort. <laughs> yes, yeah, there's or...
0: discomfort over this issue already because otherwise you would be fine with it. Mm -hmm. If you, if, if, if the two of you were discussing this and you got along perfectly and it didn't cause any issues, you wouldn't be feeling unpeaceful about that. Uh, so I'm, my advice would be if something is, is giving you pause, I would pay attention to that. Right. Because that, I mean, that's not a, I mean, there are always, it's never going to be perfect. I, you obviously have to choose your battles and, to, and find out what's important to you, but it's just something to be aware of and pay attention to and see what happens mm-hmm. because it is a difficulty. You're living in a rural area. You don't have a lot of prospects. That is something to take into consideration, mm-hmm. but I guess I would just go ahead carefully.
1: Um, yeah. And th- this is, um, it just, it, it, This is where you just have to weigh the issues and what you're facing. But even if you're in a difficult situation, a rural situation with not a lot of prospects, you don't want to make a foolish decision. Uh, Marry in haste, repent in leisure. Now, I mentioned Neil Clark Warren, and some people aren't going to like what I'm going to say right now, but he has a service that is world famous for connecting Christians together. Okay, and it's called, I can't remember, you know, this is the dating thing online. What is it?
0: E-Harmony.
1: E-Harmony. Okay, now I'm just saying I know lots of people. In fact, I met a couple a week and a half ago at in Georgia at our final reality for whom E-Harmony was what God used to bring this couple together. And uh, this allows you to uh, kind of specify a number of things like theology. And by the way, this couple that I talked to um, said that stand-to-reason was an important factor because he mentioned <laughs> in his profile that he was a stand, committed stand-to-reason guy, and she was too, and she so thought, oh, great, he's my kind of guy, at least in this area. And so, uh, now, some people are uncomfortable with uh, dating programs or whatever uh okay got it then don't do it but i'm i'm not in principle uncomfortable with it and i do know that this i know uh, probably five different couples that are ha- happily married and uh, satisfying relationships who met through e harmony and um sometimes they were geographically um in uh, uh, widely separated geographically, when they started out. So, anyway, I'm um, just a recommendation. I think if you are, if you are committed to a theological view, if you're if you're total charismatic, you know, why do you want to marry a non charismatic? You'll drive each other nuts, you know. So, uh, I mean, this is an issue of wisdom, and in fact, this is what Amy recommended was something I recommend in our decision making tape discussions, talk, CD, thing. <laughs> There's no tapes anymore. And that is that if you don't feel a piece about it, that doesn't mean it's a sign from God that it's wrong. It means you're aware of something that may mm-hmm. be amiss, and you need to take that seriously. So, I'm with Amy on this one.
0: And this isn't a small issue, because this will determine what church you will go to. Right? This is a very foundational issue, and if you are going to go to church as a family— this is a major issue. Right. Especially as you said Greg, if, if it's hard to find a church that isn't h- hostile towards the other view. Mm-hmm. So I re- yeah, this is this is a difficult one and I my heart goes out to you Katie. I mm. hope I hope Harmony helps you out. I also know many people <laughs> who've who've gotten married through eHarmony. All right, well thank you Andrew, JS and Katie. We we love hearing from you. If you would like to give us a question, you can send it on Twitter with the hashtag Ask, or you can go to our website, just go to podcasts, choose hashtag Ask, and then there's a link right there to submit a question. And we will get that question, and we will consider it for the show. We'd love to hear from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.